There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. All right, tonight on The Readout. Our nation is barreling once again towards crisis, lawlessness, and violence. No American should support election deniers for any position of genuine responsibility where their refusal to follow the rule of law will corrupt our future. All right, the Cheney defeat and what it tells us about the Republican Party. I'll tell you what it says, that election deniers and conspiracy theories theorists are no longer the party crashers. It is clearly their party now. Also tonight, Rudy Giuliani under oath in Atlanta as his legal situation looks increasingly precarious. Same could be said for Donald Trump, who is reportedly having trouble finding top-notch legal representation with a decision coming soon on whether to unseal that Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit. And Florida State Attorney Andrew Warren joins me tonight. Governor Ron DeSantis suspended him for speaking his mind about abortion, and now Warren is fighting back, filing a lawsuit against DeSantis. Good evening, everybody. I'm Tiffany Cross in for Joy Reid, and we begin the readout tonight with the downfall of Liz Cheney. Now, of course, you guys remember last night, the heir of one of America's most powerful and feared Republican families was resoundingly defeated in the Wyoming congressional primary by her former ally and friend, Harriet Hageman. Take a listen. Wyoming has drawn a line in the sand that if we put you in power, you will be accountable to us, you will answer to us, and you will do what is in our best interests. And if you don't, we will fire you. Okay, so when Liz Cheney, the daughter of the two-term Republican Vice President Dick Cheney, last ran in 2020, she won the party primary by a resounding 73%. Her loss yesterday was a stinging rebuke for Cheney, whose family has deep roots in the state and was a Republican far longer than Donald Trump. Now, what's more jarring is what her loss represents, which is the affirmation that Donald Trump remains the alpha and omega of the modern Republican Party. A few short years ago, Cheney was a rising Republican star, becoming one of Kevin McCarthy's chief deputies, in fact. She was so popular that back in 2014, she was urged to run for Senate by guess who? the woman who defeated her last night. Now, just last year, McCarthy, standing shoulder to shoulder with Cheney, waxed poetic about the diversity of views in his caucus. This Republican Party is a very big tent. Everyone's invited in. Apparently not. Earlier this week, McCarthy flew to Wyoming to campaign against Cheney, a member of his big tent caucus. And if that wasn't enough, he then went on national television and with a straight face had the temerity to attack her for being obsessed with Donald Trump. I think her whole focus has been different. Her whole focus has been against one individual, whether she has information or not, instead of focusing on her district itself. Cheney is one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump over his role instigating the Capitol insurrection. She now joins three other Republicans who lost their primaries after they were vengefully targeted by the former president. One of them, uh, Michigan's Peter Mayer, he told The New York Times, quote, I can tell you the number of times somebody said you don't have to believe the election is stolen. The important thing isn't believing it. It's saying it. That is what a Republican is supposed to do right now. 
And that is exactly what Liz Cheney refused to do. And for that, she paid the price. Now, Cheney is no Democrat. She voted with the former president 92% of the time, but she was booted because she dared to say out loud what all her colleagues, including Kevin McCarthy, were saying behind closed doors. I've had it with this guy. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. Um, nobody can defend that and nobody should defend it. Let me be very clear to all of you, and I've been very clear to the president. He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. No ifs, ands, or buts. Receipts or something. This morning, Cheney was unapologetic about her outspoken defense of the country over party. I won my primary by 73 percentage points two years ago. Uh, the path to that same victory would have been very easy. It was clear uh, how that path would go. But that path would have required that uh, I accept, that I uh, embrace, uh, that I perpetuate the big lie. And uh, I've been very clear at every moment since January 6th uh, that there are some things that have got to be above politics. Her loss is also a reminder that the only fundamental principles that seem to guide the modern Republican Party aren't principles after all. It's the delusional rantings of a wispy-haired man roaming on a golf course who lost to Joe Biden by 7 million votes. And if Cheney's loss didn't make that crystal clear, then please allow me to introduce you to the person Republican voters in Wyoming picked to run their election. Chuck Gray, ladies and gentlemen, he is the nominee for Secretary of State, the Republican nominee. His platform election integrity. I say that in quotes and repeating false claims that Joe Biden became president because of significant ballot stuffing. He will join more than a half dozen other Republicans nominated for secretaries of state across the country who actively claim that the 2020 election was fraudulent. Scary times. Joining me now is Charlie Sykes. He's editor at large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. And my old pal, Crystal Ball Alex. I think this is our first time sharing the screen together. Former Biden uh, White House Deputy Cabinet Secretary and also an MSNBC political analyst. Very happy to have you both here. Charlie, I got to kick this off with you because 10 House Republicans voted to impeach Trump for his role in inciting right. the mob uh, Capitol Hill, as you know. Only two have survived their primaries. Honestly, I don't understand why these voters are so loyal. It's almost as if they think he's Jesus. And who said it better than I could? Adam Kinziger. Take a listen. You have people today that literally, I think in their heart, they may not say it, but they equate Donald Trump with the person of Jesus Christ. And to them, if you even come out against this amazing man, Donald Trump, which I mean, obviously quite flawed, um, you are coming out against Jesus, against their Christian values. And uh, when you go after their religion, that, that violates the depth of who they are. And I've been kicked out of my tribe and that's okay. Charlie, the Republicans have turned a demon into a deity. Why do you think they are so blindly loyal to this man? What is the one central theme that he was able to unite so many people to follow this MAGA cult? Well, as you mentioned, this is not a party about ideas or a party about policies. It has become a cult of personality. And right now, uh, the party line is um, that the election was stolen. He has turned the big lie into the absolute litmus test. And that's what the whole story of Liz Cheney is about, you know, and and to that larger point, there's 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 no longer any doubt um, what the Republican Party is. Whatever vestiges the, the party had of resisting Trump have been wiped out, with the exception of Georgia. Uh, Trump backed candidates, election deniers have essentially run the table and, and, and not just Trump loyalists, 
but in, in many cases, the most extreme versions of that. And that's what makes what happened to Liz Cheney so, so epic, that she not only lost yesterday, she lost by nearly 40 points, and it was actually worse than it looks because she clearly got a number of Democratic voters who crossed over. So among Republicans, it was even it was even uglier. So as a never Trumper, I think there's no other, uh, you know, there's 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 no other um, thing to say other than, um, you know, Trump resistors in the Republican Party have been beaten. They have been routed. Uh, they have been pummeled. And you're seeing that. Uh, otherwise, Liz Cheney would have would have done better. So the question is, you know, what does she do now? And, you know, I think that that's going to be an interesting story. But the idea that somehow the Republican Party can be resurrected from this or has some rational core, you know, some some quiet you know, core that that uh, is still resisting of Donald Trump. Uh, no, it, I mean, it, it has become a full on totalitarian, authoritarian cult of personality. And I think that's going to become even more dramatically apparent uh, in the next two years. And I wonder, Charlie, if this will uh, encourage uh, more Republicans who maybe have not spoken affirmatively of Donald Trump, but have been stayed quiet. I wonder if it will push them further uh, into the MAGA cult, because you have candidates running across the country and not everyone has said they are, you know, a pro-Trump Republican. But seeing the writing on the wall, I wonder sure. if they will uh, sink deeper into it. What's your take there? Well, and in that quote that you had from uh, Peter Meyer from Michigan, you know, that that you understand that you don't have to believe it. You just have to say the words. Yeah. You have to you know, bow, bow the knee. But also, I think um, it will drive more Republicans, normal Republicans, um, college educated Republicans out of the party. Any of them. There are still Republicans who I think have held out some hope that there was a spark of rationality. And that's gone. And so many of them are going to leave. They're going to become independents. They will vote for Democrats or they will just simply drop out of, of politics. And that's where I want to bring you in, Crystal Ball, because that's the concerning thing, right? Like, I was very frustrated in 2016 uh, and beyond, really, when you heard so many Democrats saying, I can win those Trump voters, I can win those swing voters. And you kind of want to look at the base of the Democratic Party and understand how disrespected that must have made them feel. So I do wonder where these political, politically homeless folks will go and will we see the Democratic Party shift and try to make them feel welcome and roll out the red carpet? Because most of these folks were not uh, anti-Trump policy. They were anti-Trump the tweeter. They were anti-Trump saying the quiet part out loud. Like we saw Liz Cheney, she voted with him a majority of the time. What do you think about that when it comes to Democrats? Yeah, well, I think your analysis is right. What we saw last night in Wyoming is a conservative leader in Cheney uh, who was principled and, and finally stood up to impeach the defeated ex-president who was solely responsible or directly responsible for the insurrection. And she she paid for it. She lost her race. She put her country over her party. And and that's very rare among Republicans nowadays. Uh, obviously, I don't agree with her politics. Like you said, she voted some 94 percent of the time with Trump, but she stood up to him. And she lost. And I think what that tells us about the Republican Party is it's really turning in to this ultra MAGA party or this extreme MAGA party. These are the election deniers, the conspiracy theorists. Um, this woman who beat Cheney actually said and believes that Joe Biden is a human trafficker. I mean, these are some wild people, some crazy stuff. This is the insane in the membrane caucus of the Republican Party, right? Um, yeah. And they're also dangerous. they're extreme when it comes to abortion. They're extreme when it comes to voting rights. And you've got this split screen moment to your question, I think, 
what you're seeing is this this infighting over the future of the Republican Party on one hand. But then if you look at the Democratic Party, they are really getting into array. They are passing meaningful uh, legislation, uh, major wins. Just yesterday, the president signed the Inflation Reduction Act. This is the largest climate change legislation in world history. It's one win yeah. after another, led by the president and Democrats. And the last point I'll make about this is I'm here in Pittsburgh right now for the start of the Netroots Conference, which is the big conference that brings together yeah. thousands of activists around the country. And you feel a sea change. You feel all of this energy and momentum building on the Democratic side, whereas on the Republican side, you've got this infighting. They don't know where the future of the party is going. And you've got Trump lurking in the background the same way he lurked on that debate stage when he was up against Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think the baffling thing about all this for me, Charlie, is watching this play out in real time. I want to revisit yeah. Kevin McCarthy when he uh, soon after the January 6th riot happened and he engaged in this back and forth with Donald Trump. And I think that was the last time we saw Kevin McCarthy's spine. If you've seen Kevin McCarthy's spine, please let me know. But take a listen to this exchange and then we'll talk about it on the other side. When they started breaking into my office, um, Myself and the staff got removed from the office. In doing so, I made a phone call to the president, um, telling him what was going on, asking him to tell these people to stop, to make a video and go out. And I, I was very intense and very loud about it. I mean, they go on. Uh, Kevin McCarthy went on to say um, when he and Trump got in that back and forth, who the mm -hmm. F do you think you're talking to? But, Charlie, you and I talked about this before. Yeah. And so I do want to bring this up again about Liz Cheney. I have to say, yes, she is doing the right thing. That does not make yeah. her a hero, because I remember the Liz Cheney who was silent on birtherism, who echoed quietly the birtherism claims, who called Eric Holder's department the, the Department of Jihad instead of the Department of Justice. Um, she really did align herself with Trump. And so I do wonder, I feel like she bears some responsibility. We are seeing the Republican Party cannibalize. So I just wonder when we look ahead to her future plans, maybe 2024, what would she say to Democrats who remember, who have the receipts from who she was pre-Trump? Well, I mean, she's going to have to explain that and talk about that as, as many of us do. But, you know, the, the fact is that when it came down to this moment where democracy was at, at risk, she was heroic. And she understood that it was an existential threat. And you saw the contrast with her and Kevin McCarthy because she was willing to say the truth when Kevin McCarthy chose the lie because the lie was how he would keep power. And maybe the bar is low, but in the Republican Party today, a willingness to speak truth is heroic. And, you know, it, because you are willing to give up power, you are willing to give up the prestige, you are willing to, you know, be alienated from your friends, your constituents, your donors, your allies. She paid a tremendous price about that. But but I'm really glad you're playing some of these sound bites from the Ted Cruz's, the Lindsey Graham's and, and the Kevin McCarthy because in Kevin McCarthy, because they all know. They know who Donald Trump is. They know what Donald Trump has done. They know the threat he poses to the country. But when it came right down to it and they had to choose between power and their party and the country, they threw the country under the bus. Liz Cheney was unwilling yeah. to do that. 
Well, I, I take your point. Uh, I think a lot of people out there agree with you. I would just say, well, you know, folks like Liz Cheney and others are losing, you know, their donors and their positions. There were Republican policies that caused people to lose their lives. And so it's hard to look at her um, as a hero for finally doing the right thing. Um, but, you know, Twitter always agrees with you, Charlie, every time we have this conversation. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much here uh, for being here, Charlie Sykes. And Crystal Ball, so great to see you. Looking forward to seeing you soon. And coming up next yeah. on The Readout, it was, uh, what was that? Bad guy, Rudy. Rudy Giuliani sneaking out. It looks like he's avoiding the cameras after six hours of testimony before a special grand jury looking into election interference in my neck of the woods down there in Georgia. Um, when has Rudy ever avoided the cameras? We're going to talk about that on the other side. The readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. All right. All eyes are on the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta today, where Rudy Giuliani spent more than six hours testifying before a special grand jury in Georgia's investigation of efforts by Donald Trump and others to overturn his 2020 election defeat there. Now, USA Today is reporting that Giuliani's attorney, Robert Costello, declined to say whether Trump's personal lawyer invoked his right against self-incrimination. But he did add that it was, quote, cordial whatever that means. It was just a few days ago that prosecutors informed Giuliani that he was now a target in the investigation, making him the closest person to Trump to reach that status. Now, while we don't know what Giuliani was saying or not saying inside the courtroom, grand juries are, of course, closed. He's been talking to friendly media this week about the Georgia case. Take a listen. I was his lawyer of record in that case. The statements that I made, uh, uh, are either attorney-client privileged because they were between me and him, or they were being made on his behalf in order to defend him. Joining me now is Tamara Halloran. She's a senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Frederick Lawrence, he's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a distinguished lecturer at Georgetown Law Center. Very happy to have you both here. Frederick, I want to start off with you, get the legal perspective here. Can Giuliani actually invoke attorney-client privilege here? Is that even allowed? It is allowed for certain kinds of communication. Ordinarily, if you represent a client, what you say in furtherance of that client's representation is privileged and you can invoke the attorney-client privilege. The big exception here is that that does not cover criminal behavior by the attorney himself. Think of it this way. Client comes into your office and says, I just stole a car. You are allowed to talk to that client about how you're going to defend him for that charge of theft. You cannot say to the client, here's how you hotwire a car so you can go out and steal one. That's not privileged. That's not confidential. Do you think that Giuliani is willing to go to jail to protect Trump? 
He wouldn't be the first. Uh, there are a lot of people who are prepared to take the risk uh, to in order to to defend him. So I, I would imagine before it comes to that, uh, that he would invoke the Fifth Amendment, which is a different privilege. He does have the right not to incriminate himself. Now, I heard in your opening that they said it was cordial. If Bob Costello says it was cordial, that doesn't sound like the Fifth Amendment, but it's very hard to know. Nobody knows what went on inside that room except for the grand jurors, the prosecutor, and Mr. Giuliani himself. Well, let's talk about the grand jurors tomorrow, because I want to shift a bit to Lindsey Graham. We'll get back to Giuliani, but focusing on Graham just for a second. Um, something I find very interesting. I grew up in Atlanta and Fulton County um, is one of the most reliably Democratic uh, counties in the entire nation. Um, it's also a county that's a majority people of color. Is there some irony in the fact that Lindsey Graham uh, tried to have black votes thrown out, basically, um, and now faces the consequence of his actions by grand jurors that likely look like some of the people whose votes he was trying to get thrown out. Uh, and how perilous of a situation do you think Lindsey Graham is in down there? Well, right now, a lot of the maneuvering we've seen with Senator Graham has been in federal court. Uh, just this week, a federal U.S. District Court judge told him that she would not be quashing his subpoena. She directed him to come testify before the special grand jury next week. He's asking for a pause in that so he can appeal this ruling up to the conservative 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and his lawyers are insisting that he was told that he was not a target of this investigation, that he was merely being, you know, asking to give testimony as a witness to all of this. Um, and, and we'll see where all of this leads. So far, judges have not been willing to kill subpoenas for anyone, including members of Congress, members of the legislature. And now our own governor has been moving to quash his subpoena as well. But so far, judges are saying, nope, you've got to go before the special grand jury. There may be guardrails about what may or may not be asked because of things like legislative privilege, uh, but they still have had to go in and testify. I want to stick with that. Well, you brought up uh, the Republican governor there, Brian Kemp. Uh, you have new reporting out today around that situation of him trying to get out. Um, but Brian Kemp was not—he was not necessarily uh, Trump's favorite. I mean, Trump endorsed his opponent, um, and Brian Kemp, of course, remained blindly loyal, as they're known to do in the MAGA cult. Uh, why do you think he's so resistant and hesitant to testify? It seems like there's been a real communication breakdown between the governor's office and the Fulton DA's office about kind of the, the questions, the types of questions that could be asked, the circumstances, kind of what is under oath, what's on the record, what is and is not allowed to be asked. And remember, the governor is up for re-election this year. He faces Democrat Stacey Abrams in a rematch at their 2018 um match against each other. And I mean, certainly there are political points to be scored here. He's arguing that the Fulton DA is playing politics with, with a lot of this. I'm sure she will be arguing the same in her uh, response to the governor as well. And this is a moment where you see many Republicans here in Georgia who are arguing that this investigation is a partisan witch hunt and they're trying to use it on the campaign trail. Well, I'd argue that Brian Kemp has engaged in voter suppression for decades, as evidenced uh, by so many incidents uh, down there um, that I could recount. Um, but we haven't even the time. That's how much it's been. Um, Frederick, I want to come back to you on the Giuliani situation. Take a listen, because in this battle that we're uh, seeing happen between um, Trump and the legal system, there's also sometimes battles between he and his allies. Now, he and Rudy Giuliani have been BFFs so far, but Giuliani seems to uh, keep a card in his back pocket. Take a listen. 
listen. I mean, I've seen I've seen things written like he's going to throw me under the bus. Right. When they say that, I say he isn't, but I have insurance. He has insurance. What what insurance might he have, do you think? And can that comment come back? I mean, legally, I know this isn't an episode of Law and Order that gets wrapped up in one hour. But legally, can someone ask him? You mentioned that you had insurance on him. Expound, please. I don't think somebody would say that in front of a grand jury, but I tell you, a prosecutor might say that to his lawyer off the record and say, look, he said he had insurance. This would be the time to come forward with that, because right now we're this far from indicting him. If he wants not to be indicted, then this is the time to talk. So I would read that as a signal that he was sending not only to the Trump organization, but also to the prosecutors, that if this thing reaches all the way to the water's edge, that he does have evidence he's prepared to provide. This is it's interesting just hearing you talk about that, Frederick. It's it feels like this is language used to describe a crime syndicate. You know, this feels very much uh, the Sopranos uh, and, and not, uh, you know, a, a political system or organization. I want to play one last thing. Um, this is from uh, for Giuliani's former press secretary, uh, Ken Friedman, describing Giuliani as nervous. Take a listen. He knows he lied to legislators. He knows that he concocted this false elector scheme. Um, you know, he knows he lied for his client and he knows we all know it's it's clear. Rudy flew too close to the sun. He got too close to Trump. He got burned. At this point in his life, his goal is to die a free man. Samar, uh, how do you think that the people of uh, the grand jury, if they're allowed to see that or if they've seen that, how might they receive that and respond to that when hearing his testimony? I have no idea. This grand jury has been pretty leak-proof at this point. We don't know who these folks are. As you mentioned, Fulton County is a pretty darn blue county. Joe Biden won with something like 72% of the vote. Um, And still there are folks who voted for Trump. And as I've spoken to uh, some witnesses who have come to testify before the grand jury, including in the secretary of state's office, they've mentioned that they've they've had grand jurors ask them about whether there was widespread fraud in the election. So I'm not going to pretend to know what's in their heads. Uh, But you mentioned kind of comparing all this to a potential crime syndicate. And something that the Fulton DA, Fonnie Willis, has mentioned repeatedly is that she's looking at racketeering charges potentially uh, for for this case. That's something that, that of course, uh, Giuliani helped pioneer in the, the 80s and 90s in New York. Wow. It all comes full circle. Well, thank you so much, Tamara Hallerman, for being here, and Frederick Lawrence. Thanks to you both for giving important context. And still ahead for you folks at home, Trump struggles to find a respectable defense attorney willing to actually defend him. This is all happening as we await tomorrow's hearing on unsealing that contentious Mar-a-Lago search affidavit. We're going to dig into that after this break. We'll be right back. Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. 
you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Author Ari Berman on his new book, Minority Rule, the right-wing attack on the will of the people and the fight to resist it. If we're going to be at a moment in time when so many people are saying we have to understand the Constitution as it was intended, then we have to understand that it was intended to check democracy, not to expand it. And we can have such a view of the Constitution that says that all of these institutions are so amazing when it's so obvious that they made a lot of mistakes and that a lot of it needs to be corrected. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. All right, a hearing tomorrow in Florida could determine if we see another key document relating to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. The federal judge who approved the search warrant will hear arguments on whether to unseal that affidavit uh, that the federal investigators used to justify the search of Trump's Florida compound. Now, the former president says he wants the document released, quote, immediately, while the Justice Department actually opposes the move. Uh, They cite an ongoing investigation and argue that it contains highly sensitive information about what witnesses and other information required by law to be kept under seal. Meanwhile, as the former president's legal problems grow, the Washington Post reports Trump and close aides have spent eight days since the FBI searches home rushing to assemble a team of respected defense lawyers. But the answer they keep hearing is no. Joining me now is David Henderson. He's a civil rights attorney and former prosecutor. And Barbara McQuaid, she's a former U.S. attorney, MSNBC legal analyst, and professor at the University of Michigan School of Law. Uh, Barbara, I want to start with you because affidavits are advocacy documents. Although everything uh, needs to be true, there isn't exactly any exculpatory information. Um, Why would Trump want this unsealed? I mean, do you think this is his way of trying to figure out who informants are? And again, this feels like we're talking about a crime syndicate and not a former president. You're absolutely right, Tiffany. I think part of this is his public relations bid. You know, he wants to try to frame himself as somehow being a victim and targeted and being treated very unfairly. And so this is something that he can argue about. But I think there's really zero percent chance that this judge will release the search warrant affidavit at this time, because as you said, the Justice Department has said it would compromise the identities of witnesses, as well as reveal grand jury material, which by law cannot be uh, released. And so I think there's no chance. But imagine what not Trump, but his followers might do to a witness who gets identified and outed by this affidavit. We saw that attack on the Cincinnati FBI field office last week. One could just imagine what would happen to this person, whoever it may be. Uh, who is identified in this affidavit. Yeah, we saw that in the attack on the field office on last week on Friday, this week on Monday. We've seen the social media sites like Truth Social uh, dox uh, the FBI agents. They released the name of um, an agent, his, the school where his child attends, his wife. So very good point, uh, Barbara, to make about what could potentially happen if they unseal that document. Um, I want to move to you, David, because why do you think this has become such a political flashpoint, this affidavit itself? I feel like for those of us who get paid to consume the minutia, um, we are focused on it. I think people outside the Beltway probably want to know what is going to be the consequence um, of this president's actions. Tiffany, I think the reason it's become such a flashpoint is because of the other cases that normally force us into these types of discussions. We're used to seeing processes where 
Prosecutors are doing things behind closed doors, and often it's to protect bad actors. We saw that in Breonna Taylor's case, for example. We've grown so accustomed to that, it's difficult for us to contemplate when prosecutors need to keep something secret for the purpose of protecting the integrity of an investigation. What this is, is the scene from every detective show where they go over to a judge's house, normally it's at night or for some reason during brunch, and they say, we need to kick in someone's door, judge. This is why. And then all that information in real life, you write it down. And the other side, the defendants, never get to know about it. And here's a reason why. If Trump knows you're coming to Mar-a-Lago to pick up boxes, the boxes probably aren't going to be there when you get there. If Trump finds out who witnesses are, you'll probably see pressure put on those people to not talk directly or indirectly. And so it's good for him to not know what DOJ is up to until they make their next move. Yeah, really good point. Barbara, I want you to take a listen to Trump's uh, lawyer, Alina Haba, who uh, wants to argue to uncover everything. Take a listen and I'll talk about it on the other side. The president's position, the same as what I would advise him, is to ask them to uncover everything so that we can see what is going on. I understand the witness protection issue, but at the same time, these witnesses are truly not going to be um, concealed for very long. That's just not the nature of the DOJ and the FBI. So this kind of runs contrary to what you said. And here's the thing about all of this. Trump has raked in millions off of this search. He's fundraising uh, off of this search. And you have to wonder when so many people are watching a propaganda network, hearing misinformation and disinformation. Uh, these are hardworking people, I imagine, who are flooding his coffers uh, on a lie. Um, your thoughts on what the lawyer said and the fact that he's making money off of this. Well, the best defense for Donald Trump is always a good offense. Whenever he can go on the offensive, portraying himself as the victim, it's what he does. And so absolutely, he's going to fundraise about this. And now he can pretend to be outraged about not seeing the affidavit, which never gets turned over at this stage. Charges have not been filed yet in this case. Typically, that affidavit gets unsealed shortly after charges are filed and the defendant is arraigned in discovery. And that's the point at which they can challenge it in court if they want to do that. And so this point by the lawyer that, well, it's going to be known anyway at some point, we might as well know now, I think is not a good point because the time at which that gets turned over, if there's a witness protection issue, might be not until after the witness testifies at trial. That's the point at which the defendant gets to see all of the prior statements so that they can do an effective cross-examination. But if there's a witness safety issue, it doesn't come out until after the testimony. And that is to, to avoid the kind of witness tampering that David just talked about. Well, David, uh, another thing that happened this week, uh, Vice, former Vice President Mike Pence um, flirted with the idea of going before the January 6th committee. Take a listen. If there was an invitation to participate, I would consider it. If there's ever any formal invitation rendered to us, we'd give it due consideration. So this is my question, David, because Mike Pence has tweeted out uh, criticism of this FBI search. And Donald Trump really stood aside while people were outside saying, hey, Mike Pence. The fact that he's saying he's willing to give it consideration, but also still somewhat defending this president uh, and still falling in line with the extremist right wing Republican GOP party that we have now um, is baffling to me. Why do you think that is? Tiffany, the law is a game of nerves. I tell my clients that all the time, and I've had to say it in many different contexts as a lawyer. 
Normally, the longer something goes on, the more pressure builds, the more people have to contemplate whether or not they want to be on the right side of history. And the January 6th proceedings have done a remarkable job of putting pressure on people to do the right thing. If you look back at a lot of that testimony, I think Pence comes out looking like a bigger hero than he actually is. And mind you, I'm a trial lawyer, so it's in my nature to think through how things really went down. They went to him and said, hey, just say we won the election. And he didn't just say, no, that's unethical. I can't do that. He said, it's hard for me to imagine that's legal. Let me have my guy check it out. And Greg Jacob come back and says, of course, that's not legal. Are you thinking that no one just thought of that before? And so ultimately, he comes around to eventually doing the right thing, which is what I think we're seeing him flirt with here. But again, it's because the pressure is mounting and he has to think through, how do I want to look when my kids or grandkids are reading about this in a textbook one day? Too late for that. Um, I wanted to ask you both what this might mean for a potential 2024 Donald Trump run. But sadly, we are out of time and we'll have to save that question for another time. So thank you, David Henderson and Barbara McQuaid. And coming up for you guys at home, Florida State Attorney Andrew Warren is officially challenging his recent suspicion by gov or suspension by Governor Ron DeSantis. He joins me next to tell us why it's more than just his job that's at stake. The state of Florida is the state, uh, is the place where woke goes to die. Uh, we are not going to let this state, we're not going to let this state descend into some type of woke dumpster fire. When he starts saying woke, it's time for everyone else to stop. Ron DeSantis really wants to be president, doesn't he? I mean, you can just see it in his eyes as he unleashes his vision for America, a place where books are burned and history is unlearned. You could even call it Orwellian, down to the ousting of those who threaten his vision. This is something DeSantis did two weeks ago when he, without warning, suspended Andrew Warren a twice-elected Florida state attorney. Now, the removal occurred because of statements Warren had signed pledging not to prosecute cases related to abortion or gender-affirming care, meaning a Florida state attorney was really banished from office, literally forced out of office by an armed deputy, and not for anything he did, but for what he said and for what he thinks. Now, Warren is suing DeSantis in federal court, citing free speech rights and prosecutorial discretion. Joining me now is that man himself, Andrew Warren. Uh, Mr. Warren, thank you so much for being here. And this is such a bizarre story, and it feels baffling to watch it play out in real time. Now, you were suspended for something they believed you would do, not for something you actually did. I'm no lawyer, but that does not sound legal. It certainly doesn't sound ethical, is it? Well, it's not. I mean, Tiffany, the governor's broken two laws here. I mean, first, he's violated my free speech rights by retaliating against me because I spoke out on two of his favorite culture war issues, abortion and transgender rights. And secondly, he's violated the Florida Constitution by abusing his power to suspend me without any legal justification. So we filed this lawsuit because we want to make sure that even though Ron DeSantis is still the governor of Florida, the First Amendment has meaning and the Florida Constitution has meaning. And most importantly, elections have meaning. Elections do have meaning. And I, you know, I think it's cast a dark shadow across the rest of the country in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected, because you're seeing folks like Ron DeSantis. Trump may die. Trumpism is here to stay. And Ron DeSantis appears to be the heir apparent to Donald Trump. And this is a, a certain a play right out of his playbook firing someone uh, because he doesn't like them, essentially. Um, 
the polling in, in Florida shows that Ron DeSantis' approval rating is at 50%. That may seem low. It's still a lot of people who like and support this man. Um, what do you anticipate happening in this lawsuit, given this support that Ron DeSantis has? Well, we anticipate winning. I mean, the governor exists in a political world now. So whether he's running for president or trying to out Trump Trump or both, the fact is that facts still matter and truth still matters and the law, most importantly, still matters. So we do expect to win this. I mean, this is not about me. This is not about one elected official being suspended. This is about our defense of democracy. Everybody, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, should be outraged by this because your vote matters. And for the for a governor to be able to throw out your vote violates the most sacred trust of our democracy. It certainly does. And, you know, um, he's doing a, a rally for uh, J.D. Vance there in Florida. As a member of the press, I find some things very concerning about this. He um, they have very bizarre media restrictions. Journalists must agree to give access to their footage to the event organizer, uh, which is the pro-Trump GOP youth group Turning Point Action, um, and explain how they intend to use it. This also seems to violate the First Amendment right of this Constitution. What say you? Andrew. All right. Um, unfortunately, we lost Andrew Warren. Um, but as you just heard, he is suing Governor Ron DeSantis. And I can. We will see what happens there. We will keep our eye on it. Thank you, uh, Andrew Warren, for being here. We will pick this discussion up on the other side of the break. All right. Back with me is Andrew Warren, Florida State Attorney. Glad we got you back, Mr. Warren, because I did want you to weigh in on this uh, campaign event that Governor DeSantis is doing with J.D. Vance. And they have very strange rules for the press where the press has to turn over uh, their footage to uh, the pro-Trump group um, Turning Points, uh, who's hosting Turning Point Action. And they have to explain how they plan on using the footage. I was just asking you that that also seems like it's in violation uh, of the First Amendment and wanted to get your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing violations of people's constitutional rights left and right here. I mean, let's go back. We saw that so many people tried to overthrow an election on January 6th. Ron DeSantis did it on August 4th. He threw out the results of the state attorney's election in Hillsborough County. But that's why we're fighting back. I mean, and we want people to come join us in that fight at andrewwarrenfl.com, because this isn't about me. This is about defending our democracy. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, we will definitely keep our eye on this lawsuit uh, as we keep our eye on a lot of things that Florida man does down there. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, we appreciate having you. Thanks for having me. And Thank you. And one last thing before we go. This week, President Biden signed the largest climate bill in U.S. history, and it could not have come soon enough. This has been a summer of climate extremes for the entire world. China is currently experiencing its worst heat wave in 60 years. Europe has been hit with nonstop record heat waves, leading to raging wildfires and droughts throughout the continent. The United States has had its own share of extreme weather with thousands of wildfires, 50 are currently burning right now, plus once-in-a-lifetime events like the devastating floods in Kentucky last month. We've had extreme heat as well, with 48 million Americans experiencing dangerous levels of heat today, just today. And a terrifying new study predicts that by 2053, 107 million people living in an extreme heat belt reaching as far north as Chicago could experience heat index temperatures above 100 
and 25 degrees. But even more pressing is the 23-year-old mega drought that uh, the American West is currently facing, leading the Bureau of Reclamation to announce unprecedented water cuts yesterday. In January, Arizona will lose 21% of its yearly allocation, with Nevada losing 8%. The Colorado River provides water to 40 million people living in seven states in the West in cities like Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and Phoenix. But 80% of the water is actually used for agriculture, things like growing produce that feeds the entire country. The river feeds into Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which are currently at their lowest level in decades. Take a listen. This is NBC's Steve Patterson at Lake Powell. Just to give you a sense of the scope of this crisis, you go back before the drought and where I'm standing right now, I'd be about 40 feet underwater. It's a great visualization of just how dire the problem is. President Biden's bill is a great first step, but we certainly have a lot more work to do. All right, that's tonight's readout. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.